Welcome to episode 34 of Battle Rhythm, the Canadian podcast that tells you what you need to know on security and defense. I'm Stephanie Von Ladke, and my co-host, Steve Saitman, will join me shortly. In today's episode, we talk about the 75th session of the UN General Assembly, tensions between Armenia and Azerbaijan, and Trump refusing to commit to a peaceful transition of power. Our feature interview is with Dr. Barbara Perry, the director of the Center on Hate, Bias, and Extremism, and a professor in the Faculty of Social Science and Humanities at the University of Ontario Institute of Technology. We introduce a new segment called Ask an Expert, featuring Dr. Victor Assal from the University of Albany. And at the very end, stay tuned for Steve's R&R segment. Thank you for listening. So, Steph, how are you doing this week? I'm doing great, Steve. I'm still celebrating the launch of Conseil de Sécurité. Uh, did you listen to it, even though it's in French? I listened to a little bit of it, but my French uh, comprehension is as bad as ever expected to be. So I didn't listen to the whole thing. Did, how, how did the interview with the uh, foreign minister come off? It was really, really interesting. And for uh, our listeners who may not know this, Conseil de Sécurité is the new podcast co-hosted by Sarah Miriam Martin-Brulé from Bishops and Thomas Junot from the University of Ottawa. And it's the sister podcast to Battle Rhythm. And yes, they started off with a bang, featuring an interview with Minister of Foreign Affairs, Francois-Philippe Champagne. And he answered some questions about UN peacekeeping, about the future of foreign policy, about the Canadian relationship with the United States. So it was a very, very good interview. And I think the co-hosts did an amazing job for their first podcast. Was there anything he said that uh, surprised you or might have led the news had it been in English? Well, I, I like this opening towards a revision of, of Canadian foreign policy. So he didn't say so explicitly, but the questions he was raising during the interview and in the conversation with Sarah Miriam and Tama really opened the door to a lot of the conversations we've been having on this podcast, Steve, about how to adapt Canadian foreign policy in an age of increasing great power competition. So I definitely think that, you know, this, this particular minister is, is keen on, on looking at ways that Canada can express its leadership in uh, this current world order where there seems to be less and less diplomatic space for countries like Canada. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Yeah, there's been much talk this summer and this fall of a reorientation of Canadian foreign policy or rethinking of it. So uh, given the circumstances, and the circumstances are not just Trump or no Trump, but obviously the increasing aggressiveness of the Chinese, uh, lots of other challenges in the world uh, that our institutions are not operating as the way they should, which has been a constant topic in my class. I'm teaching an IR theory class where the fundamental question really is, is cooperation during the pandemic and what I want the students to focus on is, is on the, the, the inability for countries to really cooperate as much on this pandemic as compared to previous pandemics. Uh, what they tend to be focusing on is the fact that Americans aren't wearing masks and are being vaccine, vaccination skeptics and all the rest of it. So I'm gonna have to do a little bit of redirecting for that conversation. But the timing of talking to the foreign minister is, is uh, good because this is, as every September, October is, UN General Assembly season. So 
we hear the speeches from the various leaders of the members of the United Nations. What are the big take-home messages right now of all the folks who are speaking in a strange COVID time? Well, it wasn't as entertaining as previous years. It's certainly always a, a big week for diplomacy when, when the United Nations General Assembly happens. And this year was a bit of an anniversary because it was the 75th. And usually this is held in, in New York. And, and I do look at all of the speeches, not all of the speeches because there are many, but, but a few highlights. Uh, this year was just a bit different because of COVID-19. It was a series of pre-recorded speeches and, and online meetings. So it didn't, didn't really have the same feel. Mm -hmm. uh, this year's theme was reaffirming our collective commitment to multilateralism. So echoes a little bit some of the themes that, that you have been discussing with your, with your students. And it's really hard not to notice that Trump's messaging of America first clashes with this year's theme. And he certainly doubled down on this message, urging other countries to do the same, saying every country should put their own countries first. And from climate change to arms control, I think it's fair to say that multilateralism has taken a hit in the last four years. I guess, too, it's, it's what a Trump speech at the UN General Assembly looks like in an election year, too. America first, China bashing, and showing to his constituents that if he's reelected, there will be more unilateralism and less UN. And of course, the US-China rivalry was on full display. And not only in the individual uh, speeches of President Trump and President Xi Jinping, but also in the remarks of other leaders like the UN Secretary General and uh, French President Macron's speech. Yeah, and the latest news has the United States actually look at the, the Trump has asked the military to consider what it would take to dig out the various nuclear weapons that have been disassembled or put into storage because of there's an arms control agreement that may be lapsing in February. And so they're already taking the attitude of, well, we're not going to renew it. What we'll do is we'll try to, you know, restart the arms race. So the UN General Assembly as a place to have this kind of conversation, it's, it's problematic at any time, particularly when the United States and, uh, is at loggerheads with everybody else. But this reminds me of another thing that's going on these days that a war has renewed itself uh, between Armenia and Azerbaijan. For those who haven't been paying attention, uh, these two countries have basically had a alternations between war and a uh, cold peace since roughly 1989, that this is one of the legacies of the breakup of the Soviet Union, was that Armenia supported folks in Nagorno-Karabakh, uh, which was a largely Armenian populated territory within Azerbaijan. Uh, they launched an irredentist campaign, that is an effort to take back this lo supposedly lost homeland. And I've written a book on irredentism, so I, I've, I've tended to follow this stuff pretty closely. And what happens when anybody launches an irredentist campaign is it means war because countries usually don't give up parts of their territory just because somebody else wants to reunite some lost piece of territory. And so Armenia launched this war against Azerbaijan in the late 1980s. They tended to win, so they, they tended to gain control of Nagorno-Karabakh, and they also gained control of territories in between the rest of Armenia and Nagorno-Karabakh. And ever since then, it's, the international community has recognized that territory as belonging to Azerbaijan, but in practice, it's belonged to Armenia. And I guess it was Saturday or Sunday, Azerbaijan renewed hostilities, and so we now have drone strikes and other things going on between the two countries, and there's a question about what to do next. What to do next is a is a tricky question. And I was wondering as I was reading the news this week if this particular case had been part of your research, because I knew you had written about irredentism and I was wondering 
you know, this particular frozen conflict uh, had been featured in, in your writings and your research. Uh, I think what's really interesting in, in these, I mean, I, I would say squirmish, but at, at this point, it looks like a full-blown war with videos of Azerbaijan's forces firing artillery, pictures of destroyed helicopters and tanks. But what I find really interesting are the, the regional implications. Mm -hmm. you, you have Russia, which appears friendly to both sides, encouraging a ceasefire, but has military bases in Armenia and is in a treaty with Armenia where there are mutual defense commitments. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's the Collective Security Treaty Organization. And I don't know the provisions of that treaty like I know NATO's. Uh, <laughs> but, but that is certainly you know, one aspect of, of this whole situation. Then you have Turkey. Turkey clearly uh, on Azerbaijan's side. Uh, and even though Azerbaijan appears weaker militarily than Armenia, if Turkey steps in, that, that could change quite quickly. And then you have Iran, uh, another neighbor uh, who is volunteering to broker peace talks. And of course, Macron, because Macron <laughs> is, you know, doing all kinds of uh, diplomatic uh, moves these days. And, and he's calling on a ceasefire as well. So it's interesting to see how different regional powers and France mm -hmm. are positioning themselves as this uh, rapidly evolving situation is, is breaking this week. Probably most worrying is, is what the people are saying on both sides. Over the summer, there were demonstrations in, in Baku calling for Azerbaijan to take back the region. So in both countries, it seems that the public's heavily oppose compromise, which I think is worrisome. Uh, and I also think that uh, political leaders on, on all sides might see this as a, as a welcome diversion. Uh, I don't know if we can blame COVID-19 for this too, but there has been some, some economic hardship. And of course, COVID-19 has, has been a factor there too. So, so maybe there's this window of opportunity also that is being exploited uh, in the wake of COVID. Yes, and it's, it's a very confusing because we tend to support the democracies and all of this and Armenia is somewhat more democratic than Azerbaijan. Azerbaijan has had one of the more long-standing uh, authoritarian regimes in the region, but Armenia was the one who essentially started this in the late 1980s. And so now Azerbaijan is trying to get back its lost territory. So now what once was one irredentism, one effort to reunite a lost people now becomes dueling irredentisms. And it, one of the interesting dynamics here is that the move right now this summer has been for the people of Nagorno Karabakh to declare independence, which means they wouldn't actually be irredentist anymore. They would be their own country rather than being part of Armenia. But that's often taken by countries or entities that are trying to have it both ways and trying to diffuse the international opposition because Almost everybody opposes irredentism because irredentism causes war. And if everybody wanted to reunify lost territories with their homeland, we'd have endless war. I mean, one of the greatest threats, irredentist threats we have on the planet is China seizing Taiwan. The Indian-Pakistan conflict over Kashmir is also an irredentist conflict. So there is much concern to try to deter such uh, activities because it can lead to a great amount of bloodshed and even nuclear crises if you're thinking about either... Uh, India, Pakistan, or China, Taiwan. So uh, the one thing I, I want to keep an eye on is the Russians and all of this, because Russia has Armenia as an ally, but they've been playing the game both sides. They've, they've, they support both sides at various different points of time. The Russians really don't, I think, want either side to win. I think they want either side to be engaged in this tension so that both sides are looking to the Russians to help them out so that they're dependent on the Russians. It's kind of like the game the Russians are playing in, in Ukraine, where by fostering conflict, it makes Russia more relevant and more influential. Whereas Turkey, 
they've always supported Azerbaijan because they have ethnic ties that they're both Turkic peoples and, and they've, and of course, Turkey has a bad, bad history with Armenians. So it's not like they're going to support the Armenians anytime too soon. So the interesting for the Iranians is they have their own Azeri population that has occasionally been separatist. But, and so they probably have mixed feelings about this entire thing because they don't necessarily see the Armenians as have much in common, but they may see a common foe in, in, the, in the Azeris. So it's, it's a very tricky balancing act. And obviously it'd be great if there's some outside power that can try to negotiate a peace agreement. But I wouldn't call Nagorno-Karabakh Jerusalem or, you know, someplace like that that's not ultimately divisible. I think the both sides right now are pretty polarized. And as you suggested, there's, there's strong domestic political dynamics, you know, that to play the nationalist card on both sides that make it very hard to reach any kind of agreement. Well, what we might see is Russia, France, and the U.S. as co-chairs of the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe's Minsk Group attempting to broker an end to the dispute. So you were talking about external involvement. That might mm -hmm. be the root. So no single great power being involved necessarily, but you know, maybe uh, acting through an international organization for a change in terms of coming up with a solution to this before it escalates further. Speaking of escalation, the American election is less than 40 days away. And there were stories last week about Donald Trump's campaign trying to figure out ways to subvert the election by having the votes questioned in ways that might lead to state legislatures playing a greater role in selecting who are the electors that go to the electoral college that ultimately choose the president. And the reason why I raise this is because lots of people are saying, well, what, what is the stance of the U.S. military in all of this? And that kind of drives me crazy because I don't think, A, the United States military should be discussed in this context because I don't want people to politicize the U.S. military. And B, I don't think it really actually does have a role in this, that if Donald Trump decides to stay in the White House despite losing the election, there are other actors that will take him out. It will not be the U.S. military. The U.S. military does, you know, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff actually doesn't have troops in Washington, D.C. that can go ahead and, and seize the White House. I think the likely outcome would be that the U.S. military, the chairman would just say, well, the election has shown that you know, Joe Biden's the president of the United States, and whether he's in the White House or someplace else, I will follow the orders of the commander in chief as the Constitution requires. I'm sure you've been paying attention to this, like all good Canadians mm -hmm. who are nervous about this, uh, the, the, what's going on below us. What's your take <laughs> on this? Well, well, you're right. And this is exactly the, the line that the Pentagon has used. It's affirmed that it will not get involved if or when the fall election is disputed, and that it's that it, it is the role of, of the Congress, not the military, to, to resolve electoral disagreements. So they've put out uh, some messaging to maybe steer the debates in another direction. But uh, yeah, this all started when President Trump refused to commit to a peaceful transition of power during an interview at the White House. I mean, that was the first time he said it. And he just answered, well, we're going to have to see what happens. And he also suggested that the only way Biden would win the election was if it was rigged. And then Mitch McConnell tried to provide reassurance that there will be an orderly transition, but uh, it rings a little hollow uh, given the current climate. I think right now what we're seeing is that both the Republicans and the Democrats are looking to stand up strong legal teams in preparation for legal battles over the results of the November election, you know, preparing for any, any outcome. Yeah, and I pushed back real hard on the internet. I wrote a piece for Political Violence at a Glance, which is a blog by a bunch of academics who do defense security, contentious politics stuff, where I talked about how this is the threat is not a coup, which is when the military seizes power, but an autogopple, which is a Spanish term 
for when the people who are in power seize yet more power. So the, the real threat to American democracy is not the military coming out, but it's about Trump and his party trashing institutions and, and seizing power, which I think is still a, a relevant thing as we see Trump use the Department of Justice in ways that, that we could not have imagined 5, 7, 10, 15, 20 years ago. Pronounce that again for us. Uh, Autogopal, uh, or it might be autogope. I don't know. My Spanish, I never took Spanish, but the word does come from Spanish. Uh, sorry. <laughs> well, we'll also end on a more positive note, I suppose, because uh, we have a new segment, and this was our producer's idea, Melissa Jennings. And she came up with uh, the idea of introducing a segment that's called Ask an Expert. So the question that was asked this week is, what are effective ways to teach about political violence? And the featured expert is Victor Assal, a friend of yours, correct? That's right. Victor is a professor at the University of Albany, and he not only studies political violence, but he has been a, a major force in uh, American political science for how to innovate in teaching. He has taught me a game that flopped when I did it last year in my class, but has been most effective for him. But he's got all kinds of game simulations. And so he's going to answer the question of, of how to teach about political violence, which can be very difficult because you often have people in the classroom who are victims of political violence or the families are. So uh, I think it's a really good uh, conversation. Uh, it's a good timing because our feature interview is with Dr. Barbara Perry, who's the director for the Center on Hate, Bias, and Extremism and is the leader of a, a new network on hateful conduct funded by the Defense De uh, Department of National Defense. And so I talked to her about leading that network on the threat posed by extremism these days and how a uh, problem of white supremacy and things of that nature. And it was a really interesting interview. And then, of course, as always, we'll finish with my R&R &R segment. So I thank you again for spending some time with me, Steph. And I wish you luck in your grant writing and all the other things you're juggling in this strange time. Hope your boys stay well and that they can stay in school. Thank you, Steve. It's always a pleasure hanging out with you and keep up with the uh, fantastic baking. Have a great week. You too. Hi, my name is Victor Assal. I'm a professor of political science at the University of Albany, uh, State University of New York. Uh, I have two major areas of research. One is the area of political violence with a primary focus on violent non-state actors. And the other is in the area of discrimination where I've done a considerable amount of work on ethnic minority discrimination as well as discrimination against the LGBTQ community. So teaching North American students about political violence uh, can be challenging. And it can be challenging for all the right reasons in the sense that most of our students do not have experience with political violence. You can't relate them to political violence uh, in a way that in some other countries you certainly can. And so when you want to be effective in teaching about political violence, uh, there are several things that are critical uh, that I think for a professor to do. One uh, is to expose them to key different theories uh, that people have used to explain political violence. And in my mind, one should share the key theories that people use uh, 
even if one disagrees with them. And uh, when I teach about political violence, when I teach about all my subjects, I keep my opinions about which theories are right to myself. I'm neutral about it. I really want the students to apply those theories and decide for themselves which is best. And I found that that has been uh, very effective in terms of uh, teaching about political violence. My main focus when I'm not doing a research oriented uh, class is to focus on simulations and games. Now, I have several reasons why I think simulations and games um, can be useful. Uh, first of all, I think they're useful because they can engage students in a way that lectures cannot. Even if you're a phenomenal lecturer, at some point the students are just listening to you, sometimes discussing, but listening. But if they're doing a game or a simulation, they are involved. They are their own guinea pigs and they have to exercise judgment in what's going on. Also, it creates a reservoir of experience that they can draw on when they're trying to apply these theories and arguments that you've been discussing. And uh, it also, in my experience, gives them added motivation and urgency to do this right. So it's, it's basically a three-dimensional learning process. And the way I like to describe this is fundamentally, when you use simulations and games, what happens is your students get to be lab rats in their own experiments. Now, it's important to also recognize what simulations do in terms of taking away or disadvantages of simulations. Uh, they take away from other uh, learning experiences. You have to spend the time to uh, get them set up and the students have to be involved. Um, the educator often needs to spend time setting these simulations up and uh, it requires the students to cooperate. Now, I've never had students not cooperate, but I've heard other people say, no, they don't want to do it. So, you know, simulations can sometimes be challenging, but I still think that overall they are very, very useful and they're fun and making learning fun can be really great. Now, how do they teach? So for some simulations, the students have to prepare their role, which means they're doing research about who they're playing in the simulation. That can be very motivating and get them to learn about stuff in a way that they wouldn't if they weren't taking on that role. Participating in the simulation can also be very useful because students get to have experience, even if simulated, for a lot of things that they've never experienced before from negotiation to discrimination to political violence, they get to see things in ways that they're not, they just don't have the experience of before. Uh, so the participation is very important. You can also stop and have them reflect on the simulation and the simulation can also be used as a basis for oral debriefing, written debriefing, and clearly as cases they can apply the theories to for exams and discussion. And most importantly, it makes learning both useful in terms of their own experience and as I said before, fun. So an example of a really simple uh, game that I play is I have the students all get one card and tell them that if they have the card at the end of the game or the exercise, they get to uh, have a 15 point bonus on the next quiz and uh, they get to kill their classmates playing rock, paper, scissors. And if they kill a classmate with rock, paper, scissors, they get to take their card. Now for a short period of time, a student 
can come to me and I will rebirth them with a new card. And what the students do is they get up and for the most part, most of the students start killing each other. Not really, just you know, playing rock, paper, scissors, whoever wins takes that person's card. At a certain point, I stop giving out those cards and usually you get down to two or three students and I, they are leery about finishing the game and maybe they go to it and I pause them and I say, okay, uh, students who are alive, what's the point of the game? And they say to get the most cards. And I ask all the dead students, what's the point of the game? And they say uh, to survive. And I ask them, okay, if surviving is the point of the game, what's the best strategy? And the students who are dead, not all of them, but some of them say not to play. And then I asked them a question. I said, did I ever say, quoting from Highlander, there can be only one? And the students say no. And students say, oh, crud. And they have a realization that brings me to the reading of Hobbes. And it can be very useful as a jumping off point for talking about realism and how humans often think in terms of you have to be violent and you have to take power. So that's one example. And I have many others happy to talk to people. If you send me an email, I can send you some exercises. On today's Battle Rhythm, we're talking to Barbara Perry, a professor and director of the Center on Hate, Bias, and Extremism. She's a sociologist at the Ontario Tech University. Welcome to Battle Rhythm, Barbara. Hi, good to be here. You are one of the directors of a new network that the Defense Department, the Department of National Defense is funding. What is your network on and why do you choose to go through this slog of applying for it and what are you guys going to be up to over the next couple of years? We're going to be busy, uh, clearly. Yeah, so it's a network um, that is uh, engaged around research into hateful conduct and right-wing extremism within the CAF. Uh, as many of you probably know, this is something that has really come to the fore in the last couple of years as we've had a number of individuals sort of outed as, uh, you know, that is active military personnel, regular and reservist, um, being identified as having some affiliation with uh, organized right-wing extremist groups uh, in particular, uh, as well as uh, a number of former military personnel being involved in some of these groups. In fact, some of them were founders of some of the key groups, uh, such as Lamut, uh, which is largely a Quebec-based uh, group. So these sorts of incidents, I think, really spurred the, it was actually D&D that, that reached out to us a couple of years ago, given the work that I've been doing already around right-wing extremism, to see what we could share with them, how we could advise them around the issue specific to the military. And so it's uh, those conversations over a couple of years that led us then to uh, applying for the collaborative network grant, as well as uh, we'd also applied for the targeted engagement grant and we got that one as well to hire a, just a PDF. That's a one year, just funding a PDF to do sort of a, a policy assessment. It's two pieces then, so the policy assessment and then the research that's associated with the network. And that will be a series of parallel projects, I think, uh, across the team. Uh, so looking in each region, Eastern, Central, and, and Western, to do interviews with uh, personnel, with, you know, we're still sort of working this out, but current and, and former military personnel, padres, counselors, and senior leadership uh, as well. Surveys across the 
service and a lot of open source work online, that sort of thing. But then there'll be, you know, probably some spin-off projects uh, in the regions that are more specific to what the dynamics might be there. So that'll be, you know, going into year two and year three once we've got a better uh, idea of the lay of the land. So it's large, largely a research network, but of course the knowledge dissemination and mobilization is an important part of that. So we hope for a, a lot of activities uh, around that, uh, even in early days, right, as we are sort of just beginning to gather our wits about us, perhaps featuring others, not many Canadians working in this area. Um, so perhaps some Americans or, or folks, folks from Europe that have already had some experience researching uh, this community. So, you know, we have, we have high hopes and ambitions, but uh, it's still early days. So we're, we're still in the planning stages. I'm going to ask you a question, which you might not be anticipating, but did you and your team play a role in the new hateful conduct policy that had, that was enunciated this summer? Were you aware of this was going on? Um, I assume that, that 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 they would have consulted with you. Yeah, yeah, we we did see early drafts uh, of the policy and helped them to shape the definition, in particular of hateful conduct, which you know there really wasn't anything um, revolving around this area within the uh, the policy tools that were existing. So yeah, we did help some with that. And I guess my naive question is simply, when the CAF spots somebody who has this background, has a tattoo, is a member of an organization, has posted white supremacist or misogynist stuff on Facebook or wherever else, why is it so hard to get rid of these people? There's some pretty obvious measures that these people aren't suited for the CAF. And so why is it so hard to get rid of these people? Why can't we just go, okay, you've done this, now you get to leave? Yeah, well, the way it's been described to us is that the, the default mechanism is rehabilitative, right? Try and bring them back into the fold. Now, some of these are pretty far down the road. I don't think you're going to rehabilitate them. Some come into the service explicitly to gain the skills. You know, it's not a commitment to uh, serving the CAF. It's, uh, it's, it really is an attempt to, to get those skills, especially in the reserves, uh, and then come back out to the group um, to, to share them. So there are some cases where it is pretty obvious. And I think the, the, the big issue has been that there's not been a policy mechanism that allows them to do that, you know, unless they can tie it into some other sort of misconduct. But having no definition of hateful conduct, no definition of hateful ideologies and groups, you know, it's been very difficult for them legally to find a, a regulation, a, a directive that suits their needs. And so I think this is why there is, a, you know, a, a, a pretty fast push to get some policy mechanisms in place. So does that mean that with this new policy that came out this summer that we will expect to see people being kicked out of the military for this kind of behavior? Well, or? I mean, really what they have is a definition. They're, you know, <laughs> that's a starting point. There are, uh, as yet, as, at least as far as we know, no disciplinary measures attached to that definition. Uh, and this is part of the work of our policy PDF is to help to, you know, identify uh, parallel policies elsewhere uh, and mechanisms elsewhere, other countries, uh, you know, what they're doing to weed out these sorts. I mean, the U.S. has a lengthy history of, uh, you know, military engagement in the far right. Um, so they do have policy mechanisms. We can look to them. We can look to a French and German approach, just for example. 
So that is, you know, what a lot of this next year is going to, how that's going, that's what's going to occupy uh, our time and the time of one of our PDFs anyway. And D&D has, has vowed, especially the policy team and the research team, to work very closely. You know, the initial thought was that we would almost embed our PDF uh, with those teams to, you know, learn from them and, and, and guide them as well. But, uh, you know, <laughs> COVID is, has changed that as well. There still will be an awful lot of engagement, but, you know, it's, it's not quite the same as being there physically and just for the our audience the pdf is postdoctoral fellow yes yes sorry yeah so that's and that's essentially a full-time you know, academic job with research uh, responsibilities only and you know i encourage uh, my best my best uh, phd students to do that postdoc before they go on it'll be the last time that all they have to focus on is research so uh, enjoy the opportunity while you have it uh, it does sound like an excellent opportunity i guess the the next question i had from just observing as a as somebody who looks at defense and security issues but is not a specialist on hate bias and extremism almost all these people engage all these men almost always seems to be men who engage in this violence who, who engage do some spree shooting or or whatever it is have a history of beating women of, of domestic violence and so i'm curious as to whether it makes sense to use that as a filter okay if you've engaged if you've been accused of domestic violence you can't come to the calf if you're in the if you're in the calf and you engage in domestic violence that becomes a kick you out of the calf because there seems to be a whole lot of misogyny that's wrapped around white supremacy and vice versa. Yeah, I'm glad you recognize that because it's something that often gets uh, forgotten in the conversations about the far right. Uh, and it's something, I mean, when I, I started, first started looking at white supremacist groups in the 90s, late 90s or so when I was in Arizona, <laughs> you can imagine why. And so even then I was arguing for the recognition of how deeply embedded patriarchal values and, and misogyny and homophobia and transphobia were within that, uh, you know, that set of ideologies. And we're certainly seeing that more and more, I think, uh, with the incel, which is, you know, one of, one of many columns, I would argue, within the uh, the movement, the broader movement. And so, yeah, I think it's, I mean, it's not, it, you know, violence against women is not, uh, you know, a foolproof indicator of propensity towards uh, far-right activism uh, or ideologies, but it, it often is coincident uh, with it. I don't necessarily think we would use it as a marker in this context, but under Operation Honor, I think, you know, it, it is, uh, you know, sort of one of those issues that they're looking for anyway in terms of both recruitment and, you know, conduct within the service. So that is already something that's flagged. And since you have been studying this since the mid-1990s, I guess the next question is, are things markably worse now, or are we just more aware of it because of social media and all the rest of it? Is, the, is, is it worse because of the 2008 recession? Is it worse because of Donald Trump and rising populism in the world? Or are we just more aware of it because we now have a name for it, like, there were incels 20 years ago, we just didn't call them that. Yeah, well, the incel in particular, I think it's always been, I mean, that misogyny, I should say, has always been, you know, sort of not just embedded in military culture, but or far right culture, but in, you know, our culture, Western culture generally. So, but I think in terms of the far right movement, it is dramatically different. And I think different in degree and intensity than it was uh, when I was looking at it in the late 90s, early 2000s. Now, in the Canadian context, we did have another spike in the late 90s during, you know, the era of uh, the heritage 
heritage front and, and it's when you know combat 18 and uh, blood and honor really started to come to the fore here and that was fairly short-lived um, this is certainly a longer lived moment of activity uh, for the movement but also just in terms of absolute numbers whether we're talking about groups or whether we're talking about individuals it is rampant and we're we're seeing more of it because of social media because it's more visible on social media but also because there is so much more of it in social media when i was you know working in the 90s i could have maybe counted on my fingers and toes that's a bit of an exaggeration but on my fingers and toes the number of, of websites now they were really quite horrendous because there was no regulation whatsoever so it was really vicious you know what we were seeing online and, and I think you know it's it's a little more muted in terms of the public presentation now online just because you know so, uh, well on mainstream outlets anyway because you know groups and individuals have been deplatformed they know that there's you know that there's more surveillance uh, and monitoring now not necessarily by law enforcement but by you know activists and, and monitoring organizations so they have to be a little more veiled in their language but they're they're very clever at creating new language if you think about the boogaloo movement for example uh, right which you know sounds comical given the name but very serious in intention and so you know they have all this uh, you know, coded language um, standing in for, you know, the, the civil war, the big luau, uh, for example. So, you know, to use that kind of language so that it's not, you know, you, you can't figure it into your algorithms, you know, until it becomes, you know, a regular part of our vocabulary. So, yeah, I think there's a, a lot more online and offline activity. There are more groups that are active and there are far more uh, individuals that are active. Why? A whole constellation uh, of factors. We've come at the tail end of the, the sort of global Western movement towards the far right and towards uh, right-wing populism. We came late to the party, and I like to think maybe our party will be a little bit shorter than elsewhere, but we're I think we've been very much influenced by the UK, for example, by the Scandinavian countries. A lot of the groups here uh, emerged out of uh, their Scandinavian counterparts and clearly influenced by the American movement and, and by Trump and, uh, you know, his normalizing and enabling of uh, the kind of violence and, and, and vilification that we've seen uh, more most recently obviously with uh, Kenosha and, and what's been happening there and his condemnation of the protesters rather than the young man who killed two people. It turns out there's not equally fine people on both sides. Well I think you've got your hands full for the next three years not only managing this network but the stuff that you're studying is obviously of, of, of great relevance these days. The friends of mine who do, do extremist stuff suggest that no matter what happens in November in the United States, whenever Trump leaves, whether whether it's by, by impeachment, which is not, highly uh, unlikely, yeah, <laughs> or resignation or health issue or he loses the election, he'll be violent. And I think I think it's a lose-lose situation for the rest of us because win or lose, there is going to be violence. Uh, you know, if he wins, it's vindication for all of those people that he is he has supported and promoted you know which he has done this week quite quite blatantly i think now if he loses it might be a shorter lived uh, round of violence you know we might have six six months or something reactionary violence and, and backlash and and then it may die away depending on how quietly he goes one of the last questions i have which is watching what's happened in the united states for the past four years it does seem to be that there's an elective affinity between white wing extremists and policing yeah, and the problem is bad in Canada where we don't have the same kind of police completely out of control from coast to coast to coast as, as we see, we've seen this summer in the United States. But I mean, we really still don't know what happened with RCMP in the, you know, this, this, the summer, uh, yeah. at least. Yeah. And 
and there's you know there's other things going on. So I, I I'm curious as to whether you have any sense of of whether we've lost the control of the of the of the police in Canada the way the Americans have. Well, I, I certainly don't think we've gone quite that far down the road. I mean, there are, you know, there's still problems in terms of under and over policing racialized communities in particular, um, you know, particular faith-based communities as well. What we've heard over the course of the summer and what we heard, you know, a year ago when there were so many street protests uh, still is that both sides, that is the far-right extremists and the, the counter-protesters, both believe that the police are on their side, that is on the side of, of the far-right in terms of the way that they manage those uh, those conflicts. So I think that that is something that we really need to come to terms with, you know, is if that is what the far right believes, whether it's true or not, if that's what they believe, there is a problem. Uh -huh. uh, you know, it, it, it does enable them and emboldens them like, like nothing else. Well, I'm hoping that the lessons you learn from other countries for improving the conditions within the CAF can also be applied to other, other folks with guns in, in Canada. So I think that the lessons are probably translatable. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's our hope. Well, I think your network was well chosen. I look for uh, you guys to make a major contribution over the next several years. So I wish you luck in, in managing all of the activities and research that you'll be doing over the next couple of years. I appreciate that. Yeah, and, and thank you for uh, sharing this with uh, with your viewers. It's, I'm really glad to promote the network and, and let people know what we're doing. Our pleasure. Today on this week's R&R, I've got three different suggestions, one serious, two not serious. Last night, my wife and I watched Get Duked, which was on Amazon. Get Duked is about four young Scottish teenagers who have to go on a hike through the highlands, and they run into much more trouble than, than they'd expect. There's some profanity. There's some violence. It's really a strange but delightful movie. It, was, it won wards at the South by Southwest. And it's a definitely gets you out of thinking about the pandemic. It was made obviously before the pandemic and, and it's just a great distraction. So I recommend that. The other thing I'm watching these days is Lovecraft Country, which is on HBO or Crave in Canada. And it is violent and gory, but it's also a really interesting anthology. The stories of each episode do relate to the other ones. So it's not different people, but it's, Almost each story is semi-self-contained and it goes in very different directions that are unpredictable and it's really engaging. It's really fascinating and it deals uh, with the challenge of race in the United States in the 1950s with a lot of fantasy and weirdness that goes along with anything that has the word Lovecraft in it, but it's not written by Lovecraft. It's essentially a response to Lovecraft since Lovecraft was known to be a racist, but it's really interesting. Uh, so I recommend that. The last thing is I got a book this week in the mail called Bridging the Theory, Theory Practice Divide in International Relations, which is an edited volume by the folks at mostly the College of William & Mary. My friend Mike Tierney has been working with Sue Peterson on trying to figure out what the gap is between theory and practice, as between the, the social scientists and, and government and private actors. And that's one of the things that CDSN has been trying to rectify, is trying to build bridges and so uh, I just got this book. I'm looking forward to reading it. Uh, it's got a lot of really interesting, important people in that, that have different angles on this topic. 
Um, and for a shortcut for this, Mike just published a piece in Foreign Policy with some of the same uh, co-authors uh, saying that there's actually is not as much of a gap as people think, that there's a lot more energy and activism by social scientists to try to give the best research-based policy recommendations to the policymakers. Anyway, so those are my recommendations for this week. The other recommendation as always is King Arthur is a, has got great recipes for baking uh, and you can find it online. Have a good week. We'd like to hear your questions and your comments. And so please send them to us at Twitter address at CDSNRCDS or email them to cdsn.rcds at outlook.com. Thank you.